Again, free thinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. And we also have the Free Thought Project contributor, Don Vi Jr., joining the show with us today. So, as many of you know, we had the honor and privilege of talking to Dr. Robert Malone this week, and I must admit, my head is still spinning. Now, I would presume most, if not all, of our audience is familiar with his work, but for those who aren't, Dr. Robert Malone is a biochemist, a vaccine researcher, who helped invent the mRNA technology that was used in COVID vaccines, but he began to express concern about the effectiveness of the vaccine shortly after the rollout in early 2021. This concern, which he expressed on several popular podcasts, made him a proverbial punching bag for the establishment who was hell-bent on preserving the illusion of safety and efficacy of the jab. And since then, Dr. Malone's work and notoriety has skyrocketed in popularity as he shared the stage at high-profile events with legends such as RFK Jr. Now, all this started when Dr. Robert Malone shared one of our memes on Twitter and I'd be remiss if I didn't give a big thank you to Aaron Nelson, Emma Lee and World Council for Health for connecting us with Dr. Malone for this episode. And as you will hear, we took this opportunity to speak to such an authoritative expert on these topics very seriously and tried to ask questions that both Dr. Malone hadn't answered before and that our audience would find valuable. So without much further ado, here is our interview with the great Dr. Robert Malone. Well, hello, Dr. Malone, and welcome to the show. We're obviously thrilled to have you on, and we appreciate you making the time to join us today. So we've been following your work over the past three years, as many have. You now have over a million Twitter followers. Your appearance on the Joe Rogan show, which, correct me if I'm wrong, was the catapult that launched you into the public eye and also put you into the mainstream corporate media crosshairs but you're very accomplished. Your resume and credentials could literally take up half the show. But one of the accomplishments on your resume is many credit you as the creator or at least the co-creator of the mRNA technology, which I would like to get a clarification on that at some point during the show. But seeing so many people over the past few years associate the mRNA technology with big pharma, the COVID vaccine, uh, untrustworthy companies like Pfizer and Moderna, Um, possibly because the tech has been misappropriated or at the very least hastily produced. We were curious if you ever feel any regret for contributing to the development of the mRNA vaccines and where it all seems to be headed. I certainly regret the way that it's been handled and the way it's been deployed and the failure of the government and the uh, regulatory authorities worldwide to enforce Uh, worldwide standards in performing the development. But remember that, and in terms of clarification, this emerged, this tech emerged off of my bench when I was a graduate student at the Salk Institute of, uh, um, in the laboratory of molecular virology. And uh, there was no way at the time to anticipate the way that this was going to be uh, exploited, developed. In fact, the people that held the initial patents, and just to clarify, the only compensation I ever received for my role in originating the concepts and uh, reducing them to practice in the late 1980s up to 1991, the only compensation I received was one Susan B. Anthony dollar. 
So I there, despite the rumors, I did not get rich off of this tech. And uh, like many have observed in the past, once an invention is out there, you can't control how it gets exploited by third parties. And unfortunately, the history has shown us that again and again, if a technology can be weaponized, it will be weaponized. It will be exploited for commercial gain, etc. That's just the nature of things. What happened in this case was the technology got buried for uh, the entire period until the patents expired because Merck want, bought it and they uh, um, kept others from developing it, including myself when I was an academic after I had completed my training as an MD and in graduate school. Uh, they kept others from developing it until the patents expired and then all of this exploded. That's why there's this long gap is it was basically Merck pocket vetoing the tech. In terms of uh, uh, what's happened, there's there's no, I have played no role in the development of these vaccines. I made my assessment about what was needed back in January of 2020 and focused on repurposing drugs and making early treatment available to people rather than on the vaccines, because I knew there was not sufficient time to develop a safe and effective vaccine product, no matter the technology. So I don't, I don't regret uh, having had the insights when I did. They had no direct coupling with how that's been exploited. And there's no way that I or anybody else really can, uh, if, if you're an inventor, can really direct how these things move. They're, they're, those decisions are made by uh, large uh, finance and large corporate interests, and in this case, the pharmaceutical industry, and no one person can get in the way of that train. That's, that's a, a whole different thing. So, okay, so if I were to Google your name right now, there's a number of articles that cast doubt on your involvement in the creation of the mRNA technology. Sure they do. Yep, leading right, with right. the Atlantic Monthly. Um, it's worth reading those. The Atlantic Monthly article was, is extremely poorly written. It's written by a guy who has no basis in science, and he primarily rate, writes for the Journal of Higher Education about wokeism issues. Uh, likewise, Rolling Stone, New York Times, Washington Post. We have a lawsuit against the Washington Post for malicious defamation relating to their various articles. But what they all neglect to cite is the actual patents. None of them will attend to the patents and what that patent record demonstrates. There are uh, documentaries coming out and have been some others that cover these issues, but corporate media somehow completely turns a blind eye to the patents. Alex Marinos, uh, many know him from the internet, did a deep dive on this and uh, concluded that my assertions were uh, absolutely based in fact. And I, I have the receipts, I have the original patent disclosures, et cetera. For instance, when the New York Times reporter, Davy Alba came to our house to interview us, my wife and I about all this, uh, she refused to look at the patents and the patent disclosures. There's, there's a, been an, an intentional effort to uh, obscure this, obscure the uh, origin of the technology. And what's fascinating about that is a lot of this was done in the context of a very active marketing campaign trying to get the Nobel Prize for Curriculum and Weissman. That failed. They did win the Lasker Prize and the equivalent prize from uh, the uh, Israeli government and the Spanish government. So they've received millions of dollars for their contribution, but their patents uh, say nothing about vaccines. They involve the use of pseudouridine incorporation into mRNA for delivery purposes. They did not envision the vaccine application, even though they came about a decade after me. And they, Kitty Carrico actually asked me to help her out and point her towards uh, various contacts in the segment, in the sector of mRNA uh, delivery uh, research and development. So, uh, 
but they they tried their best. This was Penn, I believe, BioNTech also mounted a lobbying campaign. And all of this was part of that lobbying campaign to try to get the Nobel Prize. But as I said, they failed. Uh, their contribution really wasn't that significant if you look at the actual work they did. And uh, that's how the uh, prize committee has evaluated. I happen to know that directly. And uh, it's pretty much died down now since they didn't win that prize and then they didn't win the following year. The press has kind of let this go, but that's what happened was there was an effort to write me out of history. What's fascinating about this is the Moderna patents that they're now in a big patent battle attacking Pfizer BioNTech. The Moderna patents failed to cite all of those early nine patents as well as my papers. Uh, that cover all of this. So it appears to my eyes as somebody with many patents, not just these nine, I'm very experienced in, in um, intellectual property management and, and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It appears that the Moderna patents uh, have a huge problem of failure to cite. And uh, that may be part of the motivation here to deny my own contributions is that in patent law, if you fail to cite prior art, your patent can be invalidated. And there's no question that the Moderna patents fail to cite the prior art of these nine issued patents that clearly describe mRNA delivery and its use for vaccination and demonstrate the reduction to practice in, in eliciting an immune response by using mRNA vaccination. Yeah, well, <clears throat> this this onslaught of misinformation has been putting, you know, been put out against you for like the last three years. You you had mentioned that you 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 might have a lawsuit in the works. Like I was gonna, I wanted to ask you. It's not in the works. Uh, the lawsuit against the Washington Post for malicious defamation, and we've also sent cease and desist letters to all the others: Rolling Stone, Atlantic Monthly, uh, New York Times, etc. But. Uh, Against the Washington Post, the status of that lawsuit is that um, the judge here in Virginia uh, is uh, currently evaluating whether to allow that to proceed to uh, discovery. And if it proceeds to discovery, it's, it's believed that it'll be highly likely that the Post will settle because in discovery, they would have to reveal their sources and they would have to reveal potentially the involvement of the U.S. government in what they've done uh, with their repeated attacks and malicious defamation. Right, and and that that would be a whole new can of worms for them to open. <laughs> we we just saw like they they've now resorted to just straw man fallacies. We were talking about this yesterday. We just saw a piece in uh, USA Today that attempted to create a straw man to discredit you, but they. When you read when you go in the article and read it, there's actually nothing that you said that you know that they're they're making the claim that the the claim was that um, that they're trying to fact check was that Dr. Robert Malone claims they're putting mRNA vaccines in our food, and clearly from the article it doesn't say that. You know, some website that I've never heard of you know says that and and makes that claim. Yeah, this, this is typical. Uh, you're right. They do. Uh, straw man is a typical go to for these people. And USA Today is a frequent uh, um, perpetrator of this strategy. There are um, obscure third party entities. One of them is the Center for Countering Digital Hate. They're often AstroTurf uh, based organizations. Uh, so false grassroots. Uh, that are sponsored by often the intelligence community. And uh, they will put out an outrageous statement and then that'll get picked up and amplified by the likes of the Washington Post. And basically that, in that case, that has now been added into our, uh, um, our case against the Washington Post. But uh, this, is, this is a well-established ecosystem. Uh, I, I wrote an essay uh, and posted it yesterday in our Substack about the new campaign by Peter Hotez and many others to uh, create a false equivalency between people that are vaccine hesitant and anti-Semites. Uh, this is this is one of those uh, new initiatives, and it's really been going on for a while. Where unfor for, unfortunately for them, 
the potency of the term anti-vaxxer has been lost. Uh, they redefined anti-vaxxer as anybody who uh, was not okay with vaccine mandates. Right. And in so doing, they defined the majority of the U.S. population as anti-vaxxers. And so now the potency of that term has been lost in a plurality or majority of Americans when polled now identify as anti-vaxxers. And so now they have to somehow turn up the knob and they're attempting to do so by linking anti-vaxxer with Proud Boys, Nazi, neo-Nazi and anti-Semites is the new strategy. But this is just weaponizing language and it's another part of this uh, long-term strategy of twisting the meaning of, of information and words to support a political agenda. Yep. All right. Speaking of the long-term strategy of uh, essentially information warfare that's been ongoing, of course, we know that much of the media complex, at least in the mainstream, has been captured and used to spread propaganda since the 1950s, Operation Mockingbird and so on. But with your appearance on Joe Rogan, I remember you made a point to discuss uh, mass formation psychosis. And I would just like to get your opinion. How much of that do you believe plays into the spreading of the hysteria and the spreading of misinformation and disinformation against yourself and others, uh, as opposed to the coordinated propaganda campaign that's been ongoing for these last few years? Well, those two things are linked. <clears throat> um, so, Matthias Desmet's theory, and, and there are those who've tried to weaponize that against me and use that as a basis for making an assertion that I'm a mass murderer. I mean, I, there's like eight different ways that people are asserting that I'm a mass murderer. By speaking out against the vaccines, I'm a mass murderer. By having invented the technology, I'm a mass murderer. And by supporting Matthias Desmet's theories about mass formation, which are really Hannah Arendt's uh, theories and used Malora's theories and go the, all the way back to Sigmund Freud and before. I mean, it can be traced back to Plato and the allegory of the cave. This is all that same uh, logic and psychology and observations about human behavior. But uh, in, the, in the case of Matthias Desmet and his theories about mass formation, which is essentially a mass hypnosis or mass psychosis. Those are also um, terms that are used to describe this. Uh, what he's describing is a 21st century update of Hanna's work um, coming off of World War II and her experiences in concentration camps. She's a, uh, a European Jew who was, uh, or Jewess that was subjected to the concentration camps and then uh, became one of the leading philosophers of the 20th century, but was absolutely rejected by the Jewish American community under the thesis that her beliefs and, and observations were in some way attributing guilt to the victims. Uh, that's not the case. It's a perversion of the interpretation, but the same arguments being used with Matthias. What Matthias and Hannah um, posit is that there are certain conditions that can exist in society which become precursors, which enable uh, the penetration of propaganda and its weaponization to control people's thought and behavior. And uh, these conditions include social fragmentation, uh, free-floating anxiety, which often gets transformed into free-floating anger, and a number of other things which are are absolutely existed prior to the uh, pandemic, if we want to call it that, the COVID crisis, mm -hmm. I prefer to call it. And uh, we created a, a rich landscape upon which what we now have well documented was the uh, deployment of fifth generation warfare technology, largely by military operatives, um, as well as intelligence operatives, in particular within the Five Eyes Alliance, which is this intelligence uh, alliance that ties together Great Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States. And enlisting those countries, many listeners will recognize that these have been some of the most egregious in terms of their uh, policies and, and uh, the authoritarianism that's been deployed in those nations. 
Uh, and they all share this common bond of uh, both the Five Eyes Alliance and the, the uh, deployment of this fifth generation warfare technology for PSYOPs against their own civilian populations. This is technology that was developed to counter the effectiveness of the asymmetric warfare strategies of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, um, all the way back to the Viet Cong. And, and I argue that every single one of those fourth generation warfare conflicts has been lost by the United States. Basically, this is a technology that was developed in which the, the logic of physical battlefields is obsolete and uh, the battlefield in fifth gen warfare is over your mind, over your thoughts, over everything that you contact and um, uh, use to base your understanding of reality on, and in particular over your emotions. This is technology that is very deeply grounded in marketing and psychology and uh, which was very actively deployed against all of us in a prospective way over the last three years to convince us to go along with the party line that the government wished to promote. For instance, safe and effectiveness of the vaccines, um, the effectiveness of masks, the effectiveness of social distancing, um, the language around uh, basically guilt tripping people into getting the vaccine, otherwise they would be killing grandmother all of that was um, pre-tested and deployed in a very clear, unambiguous military campaign, including the use of nudge technology, uh, which is uh, originally pioneered in Great Britain. And all of this was coordinated through the Trusted News Initiative, which is run by, um, uh, in the UK, uh, by the BBC, and uh, which explicitly serves as the hub that ties together big tech, and uh, um, all of the major media, what we call corporate media or legacy media all over the world. So many great points there. And um, yeah, the misinformation is, is so thick. You know, yesterday we were talking uh, amongst ourselves in our, our little group chat, kind of preparing for this conversation today. And we were joking around with each other that if we looked hard enough, we'd probably find some article that was claiming that you're a racist. And, uh, you know, for inventing this technology, for, you know, being opposed to the, the mainstream narratives, uh, but close enough, right? In a roundabout way, I guess you're being called an anti-Semite. So. Yes. So, so the attempt is currently to label any of us as um, racist. Yes, that's a harder stretch. And so specifically anti-Semites. Sure. And uh, in the case of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, uh, which is absolutely a, a grassroots organization linked to the intelligence community in the United States and Great Britain. It was a pop-up that started in somebody's apartment uh, in the UK a couple of years ago during the COVID crisis. Um, what they do there is they make these false associations by, between people who are, in fact, um, neo-Nazis or anti-Semites and others who aren't, but then they list them all together and bundle them in an article, which then gets repeated. And you can find this, and we've written essays about this uh, previously about the Center for Countering Digital Hate, but uh, that's, that's the way the game is played. And I, I need to emphasize for all of us, uh, in, in fifth generation warfare, there are no ethics. There are no boundaries. There's no different differentiation between civilians and combatants. And so that creates an environment in which there's no rules of engagement, unlike traditional warfare. Anything goes, and they will do and say anything that they think advances their cause. They have no ethical boundaries because it's all justified based on the utilitarian concept of the means justify the ends. And so that's that's where we're at. And, and for anybody who is going to engage in this battlefield, and absolutely Twitter is both a weapon and a battlefield as one example, all social media is. Um, most of the social media applications are sponsored by the intelligence community originally launched by them. Twitter was absolutely deployed as a weapon during Arab Spring. People got a kind of 
stop with the naivete, wake up and see what's really going on here. But uh, there, there are no ethical boundaries. And if you're going to engage in this battlefield, you have to go in understanding that they will do and say anything that they can, the only uh, to, to achieve their objectives, including delegitimizing people, et cetera, creating these straw mans, whatever. And the only, the only barrier to them just not going hog wild with the malicious defamation is the courts. And the problem is the courts are slow. And the courts generally don't like to take these defamation cases. They're among the hardest to win. And they're, a lot of them are wrapped around a, a court case in the early 60s um, called Sullivan versus the New York Times that gives the newspapers immunity and the corporate media immunity from uh, basically from, uh, or this is how it's been interpreted, from being held accountable for malicious defamation if they're attacking people who are public figures. And uh, that is considered by many to be the origin of this. Before Sullivan, um, everything was completely opposite to where it is now. Uh, public figures actually had more protection against malicious defamation under the theory going back to the um, Magna Carta times that um, they, by serving the public, deserve to have more protection against malicious defamation. All these malicious defamation laws come out of the era of dueling. They were basically put in place to keep people from shooting each other, like Aaron Burr, um, over disputes um, to create some legal way to resolve them. So that's, that's where we're at, is that there was an active lobbying campaign by corporate media during the time of Mockingbird to uh, um, upend the traditional relationship between corporate media and malicious defamation in the courts via the case of Sullivan versus the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, if you keep repeating the lie loudly and boldly, eventually the masses are going to catch on and start repeating it themselves, right? And they actually deployed that same strategy with us back in 2018 when they took us down. They called us Russian assets. They called us Russian propagandists. And I know in the email I sent to you, I mentioned our story where we lost nearly 6 million fans due to censorship. We were one of the first uh, right after Alex Jones was deplatformed. And I know you were banned from Twitter for nearly a year before your account was reinstated as well. But re recently, um, ex-Rolling Stone journalist Matt Taibbi put out another Twitter files yes. release dubbed the Censorship Industrial Complex, where he noted numerous government agencies were instructing Twitter and other social media companies to remove COVID information that was even true, but it could possibly fuel vaccine hesitancy. Right. So... This is something that's been going on uh, for a long time now, as you were just noting. And I guess my question is, how do we combat this level of spying and censorship? I mean, even there was a story in April 2021 that we covered about the U.S. Postal Service running a covert operations program to spy on American social media posts to share with intelligence agencies. So how do we combat this level of spying and censorship that's seemingly been woven into the fabric of nearly every aspect of our lives. And obviously it's decimating the First Amendment. Right. Um, and there's other recent examples to illustrate your point. Uh, in the context of the banking crisis, there's now been advocacy on the Hill for censorship about banking information under the thesis that one should not cry fire in a crowded theater. But the counterpoint to that is if the theater is actually on fire, you have a moral obligation to cry fire. Um, and that seems to be the case with the banking system currently, although that's, you know, there's a lot of discussion around that. Right. We also had the reveal just recently that the CDC bought cell phone data to track whether or not people were complying with the uh, lockdown mandates because cell phone data can be used to triangulate your right. geographic position. And that, by the way, is part of the toolkit in Twitter. Um, so uh, how do we combat it? Uh, let me make a couple of statements. First off, speaking about the concept of sovereignty and in individual sovereignty, 
I think the concept of individual sovereignty has become obsolete. It's an anachronism. When you exist in a world in which virtually all information that you encounter is actively manipulated to using high-powered um, industrial military-grade technology to influence how you think and feel and what you believe you know, um, and it's being done by the federal government or by other parties, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, George Soros, we can go on and on. But if, if your ability to think for yourself is now compromised because of the use of this technology, then the idea of you having personal sovereignty and being able to make your own decisions, for instance, about voting, becomes completely obsolete it negates that concept. The other thing is that we now clearly live in a world, this is not, there's no, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is unequivocal. We live in a world in which from the lowest level bureaucrat all the way to the president of the United States, there's been a willingness to conspire to circumvent the First Amendment. That's undisputable. And there is no remedy other than impeachment because of the courts and the inefficiency of the courts. Now, there's a couple of things here that can be done. And one is uh, there's a court case, a very active court case proceeding against Section 230, which is what the tech industry uses to provide protection. And um, the district court that covers the West Coast um, has actively um, tried to control all Section 230 cases, and it repeatedly rules in ways that protect the technology industry. But that's now being broken, and there's, I think it's the Fourth Circuit and some others are getting involved. And uh, a strong case can be made that the interpretation of Section 230 is incorrect, that is being promoted in the West Coast District Court. So that, if that flips, and it's, it is currently on the docket to be considered by the Supreme Court, if, if Section 230 is reinterpreted as it was originally written in Congress, then um, we've got a huge backlog of over 400 cases that have been incorrectly adjudicated that'll have to be resolved. But it will completely change the relationship of, of tech in censorship uh, in, in the context of information and will really block the ability for this kind of coordinated effort. I think personally, we need legislation to protect the privacy and rights of individuals. And this includes their right to think. I think that it, it, we all know that it is wrong for the government to actively propagate um, censorship and propaganda even if they justify it as necessary to preserve democracy. If you look at what they're talking about, and I'm quoting from Mr. Obama, but Mr. Biden says the same things. The logic is that their version of democracy has to be protected by censoring information about vaccines, about the bank failure, about uh, the um, origin of the virus, about um, Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, all of these things quickly become yet just another political weapon to advance the interests of one group against another group. And they're now so powerful that they can control the ability of everyone to think clearly. And you're alluding to it indirectly, but if you, if in your comments about how they repeat the lies, et cetera, this is, this is all organized technology. It's, it's well organized and structured. And as I said, it's basically a derivative of um, marketing technology that we've all been subjected to most of our lives, you know, to sell us hamburgers and milkshakes. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly powerful. And uh, it's been turned on the world. It, it's uh, able to easily sway election results. And I think that we have to have a, a really global dialogue, but certainly a national dialogue about whether or not this type of behavior is acceptable. It has been made acceptable by executive order by Mr. Biden, where now the, the intelligence community is allowed to spy on Americans by executive order. 
And uh, this goes back to the events around 9-11 and uh, the legislation that was put in place there, the Patriot Act, et cetera, that has enabled this whole industrial, as, as Matt Taibbi was referring to, this industrial uh, censorship complex that's become a massive industry. And we, I think if we don't put a stop to this legislatively, then what is going to be lost is, you know, truly we will lose our democracy. Our democracy will be sold to the highest bidder who is able to deploy the best uh, technology to um, compel us to think, believe, and feel however it is they want us to think, believe, and feel. Right. So sort of pivoting off of the censorship and propaganda campaigns, uh, we've also seen throughout this whole era of, of what I refer to as COVID-1984, if we were to look at the way that reality has essentially been inverted, throughout the years there have been these number of topics. And just to, just to put a pin in it, you were, you're referencing Orwell's book. Yes, sir. So uh, throughout these years, we've seen these sort of topics go from, oh, you can't talk about that to accept it in the mainstream sort of orthodoxy. And it's completely been uh, sort of whitewashed throughout the dialogue of the nation, as you were referring to. And one of the things we've seen happen with that recently is the lab leak hypothesis that even just a year ago, you would be, as myself and Matt and Jason were at one point, you would be censored or banned for X amount of time if you were to even postulate the possibility of uh, the virus originating in the Wuhan lab as opposed to bat soup or whatever the narrative was. And now it's essentially been accepted in the mainstream that the likelihood is that it, it did originate in the Wuhan lab. And of course, much American media tends to leave out uh, the fact that that was also contributed by the NIAID and Dr. Fauci's gain of function research. But what are your feelings about this whole lab leak hypothesis now going mainstream when you could just you would you could get banned for even posing that question merely a year ago? Or Biden's laptop or uh, the Russian disinformation campaign that's turned out to be fraudulent. Uh, I mean, there's many, many data points along this line. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the lab leak, right now, as of today, and this is something I was discussing on Bannon earlier today and will discuss tonight at length, uh, there's a pushback campaign from Dr. Fauci and MSNBC and much of the corporate media to push back against the uh, um, assertion that this was a engineered virus that leaked out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was produced using technology transferred from North Carolina and uh, which was funded, if you believe Bob Redfield, and you should, he is in an excellent position to know what goes on behind the scenes. A former CDC director, former DOD, uh, and in the right hand uh, of Bob Gallo at the Institute of Human Virology. Uh, Bob Redfield testified under oath that it was uh, NIH, NIAID, uh, the State Department, USAID, which many of us recognize as a surrogate for the intelligence community in the United States. Um, uh, and uh, let's see who else, oh, and DOD that funded the gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we have the, the receipts, the documents that were pulled off of a DARPA server that show the proposal from EcoHealth Alliance around why this was done. Uh, but right now there's a very active campaign in progress that's been launched to push back against this and to create a cloud of ambiguity around it um, along the lines of until we really know what the final um, determination is, then we have to maintain an open mind about the possibility that this was a uh, natural biologic origin. And then Dr. Fauci goes on in his interviews today on MSNBC and says that there's no way we ever will know because the CCP is not cooperating. So he created a little logic trap in trying to say um, that we should not act uh, other than um, assuming that both options might be the case. Uh, we should not conclude that it was one or the other 
until we know definitively, and we can't know definitively because the CCP is not cooperating. So this is not settled yet. It is absolutely an active uh, area for um, uh, fifth generation warfare combat, for uh, press disinformation being spread, including the disinformation that the vaccines were safe and effective. That's also continued to be propagated. I was about to say that these same people who are covering up the distract and distracting from the lab leak origin are doing the same with regard to the vaccination. Like the psyop is easy to spot when talking about that and to shift gears to the vaccine. You know, we're talking about a more than 4,000% increase in, in all VAERS reports during the rollout of this vaccine with like a 700% increase in death reports to VAERS. Like this is just for a single vaccine too. And this is more, more deaths and Adverse events have been reported in the last two years in the history of, of VAERS database. Like these jabs appear to be doing real tangible harm and no one's being held accountable for it. And, and, and instead of actually questioning them, we have the Rachel Maddows and the Dr. Fauci's shouting down anybody else who does question them. How do we stop these behemoths or, or expose them better like Pfizer and Moderna for the real harm that they appear to be doing with over people's well-being and their health? Uh, so that's another good question. And when you figure it out, uh, give my friend Steve Kirsch a call. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm doing my part. Uh, we'll be testifying before the European Parliament uh, at, in, in a little over a month now, uh, talking about this. Europe seems to be further ahead. The uh, um, health minister of Germany has now acknowledged that in his opinion, the clinical, you know, severe adverse event rate for these vaccines is about one in 10,000. Many physicians uh, make the case that it's more like one in 500. But uh, even at one in 10,000, that's five times higher than the one in 50,000 rate that caused the withdrawal of the adenovirus-based um, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. Many nations uh, throughout the world are, have dropped the boosters. The data are quite clear that the boosters cause more harm than good, and that those that are heavily inoculated are the ones most likely to be hospitalized with COVID. But there's a denial of this. This is, you know, if you think about it, um, just in terms of strategy and tactics, organizations like MSNBC and Google, and uh, previously Twitter, uh, Facebook certainly, have actively conspired to suppress informed consent. And they continue to do so together with the U.S. government, particularly the CDC and FDA. And uh, also they've conspired to suppress alternative treatments such as ivermectin. There was a paper out in one of the major Australian publications today or yesterday in which it was uh, documented that the uh, TGA, the Australian Health Authority, had uh, suppressed ivermectin and punished physicians who would prescribe it um, explicitly for the reason that the availability and, and distribution of ivermectin would cause vaccine hesitancy. So we have multiple examples of smoking guns that the logic was that we should prevent people from getting pharmaceutical treatments early that would save their lives in order to prevent them from being hesitant about taking a vaccine that will not save their lives, will not prevent infection, will not prevent transmission, will not prevent replication, will not get them to herd immunity, um, and which are absolutely toxic at some frequency. The question we're just arguing about is, what is that frequency? And beyond that, there is absolutely no debate that the lockdown policies, the flatten the curve and all that was a complete abject failure. And now there's an attempt to suppress information about the failure of masks to work. But this is self-evident. There are three routes of infection for this virus, your nose, your mouth, and your eyes. And the last time I checked, none of these masks cover your eyes.
<laughs> so true. Apparently, they do cover the eyes of uh, some people. <laughs> you know, and Facebook and Twitter <laughs> help cover do their that. mind. Everything. Yeah. With, uh, you know, censoring hashtags like died suddenly, right? People were just giving their own stories about uh, their relatives and even their own children who got the jab. Which, which were which were prevented from being um, shared. Uh, now we can share them on Twitter, but you can't share them on YouTube. Or Facebook. You can't or, share them yeah. on Facebook. Uh, and this is suppression of informed consent. I argue that this is a legal liability for these companies that have done that. So uh, changing gears again, and this is kind of a question that might be kind of off the wall to you, doctor, but it's something that keeps kind of start, keeps emerging and uh, it doesn't seem to really hold a lot of weight. But uh, there's this strange conspiracy theory held by a relatively small but vocal minority that there is no virus. Uh, Ah, yes, I was wondering if that's the one you were going to say. <laughs> You're either going to talk about graphene oxide or no virus. <laughs> oh, no, well, we yeah, don't um, believe in this at, at all. We just want to get your take on it, just to be clear. So uh, what this emerges from is a very, very old turn-of-the-century debate um, about terrain theory. And it really comes from a misunderstanding of terrain theory and a... Uh, what I, as a virologist and vaccinologist, what I perceive as a um, willful blindness about actual data. Uh, viruses do exist. Viruses infect insects. They infect virtually all bacteria. They infect plants. They're used for gene transfer in plants. Anybody that uh, objects to the genetically modified organism, peas and corn, et cetera, all that stuff is done with plant viruses for the most part. Um, I, you know, it's easy to isolate and purify viruses. Uh, it's easy to see them under electron microscopes. Uh, it's easy to observe their behavior. Uh, it's easy to observe how viruses interact with the genome of certain animals to cause cancer. This is all extremely well documented. And uh, I, one of my concerns about this is this may be a false narrative being promoted to delegitimize, um, you know, real science, the people that are objecting to what's going on uh, um, and, and to associate them with crazy talk. Uh, and uh, that is an absolutely a strategy that's used by infiltrators and disruptors, many of whom have been documented as being paid by the US government and working as subcontractors to DOD or the intelligence community. It's another part of the fifth generation warfare. And I feel that there's, personally, I, I suspect and fear that these folks have been, you know, also subjected to psyops that has convinced them of things that are demonstrably false. And they're now propagating this against uh, others. And what it results in is a divide and conquer strategy. I often refer to the French Revolution, just as one clear example, with the Jacobins. There's a strange dynamic in protest movements uh, that you can see play out again and again, in which people that aren't sufficiently extreme are then labeled as opposition. So that there's a drive towards more and more and more extremism when this dynamic kicks in. And this is what led to the mass executions of Madame Guillotine during the French Revolution due to the accusations that people weren't sufficiently radicalized. They weren't sufficiently on board with whatever the common a belief system was. And these same dynamics are playing out now, but they're amplified by social media and by these odd aspects of social media where people that say more outrageous stuff get more clicks and more views. And as you know, that translates into more money, right. particularly with things like Substack. So there's this perverse incentive to say crazy stuff because it gets you more attention. And the best way to do that is to, if you're somebody with a small podcast, for instance, um, is to tax somebody with a big podcast following 
or a big Twitter following or whatever. And then you can bleed off some of those um, by attacking people that have a higher profile. This is, this is, you know, punching up and, uh, and it, it is a whole business model that is used by many of these people that see themselves as Alex Jones, like shock jocks, but they lack his intelligence and insight in my opinion. Um, this is part of the same business model that CNN uses or in MSNBC with weaponizing fear and outrage. It's just done at a smaller scale. Yeah, spot on. Great perspective there, Dr. Malone. And the flat earth theory comes to mind, you know, right off the bat when you were saying that. But um, okay, so I have one more broad question, but we are getting close to the wrap and we still want to talk to you about your book. So um, zooming out, now that the pandemic is uh, mostly behind us, someone in your position likely has a unique perspective on just how much of the response to COVID felt orchestrated rather than organic. So I just wanted to get your take as to who you think led the push to all the unscientific mandates. And in your opinion, you know, if it was truly just a you know, concerned scientific community as you know, they've tried to sell to us, or was it more realistically big pharma and government? Or is it more of like the nefarious outside source, like the World Economic Forum or the Gates Foundation, as some conspiracy theorists maybe suggest? Uh, the involvement of the Gates Foundation is not a conspiracy theory. It's well documented. Um, sure. But I mean, like, who who do you think was really... I, I, get, I get your question. Okay. Um, so there is this tendency to want to identify a single bad actor. Uh, who, and this is often phrased, who is the puppet master? And uh, there are a lot of different theories about who is that puppet master. Is it Soros? Is it uh, the uh, owners of the Bank of International Settlements? Is it the owners of the central banks? And a strong case can be made at a minimum that the banking industry and finance has weaponized and exploited the COVID crisis. Um, it's undisputable that Event 201 occurred and it was financed by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the WEF. It's indisputable that Bill Gates made strategic investments based on his insider knowledge coming off of hosting these war games. Um, those uh, strategic investments in vaccine companies, among others, yielded huge returns. Um, he then sold those investments as it was becoming clear that the vaccines were not safe and effective, and then turned on the very industry that he'd invented in, that he'd invested in. So that can be, that's, that's clear that there was at, at minimum complicity there and exploitation. My theory of the case goes back to what actually I think is the podcast that put me on the radar, which was the Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch, How to Save the World in Three Easy Steps. Um, and you'll recall, if you if you haven't seen it, let me remind you, uh, Brett reaches towards the end in a, to a plea for Elon Musk to save us from ourselves by buying Pfizer. Uh, not too far off the mark from what ended up happening in the end. But uh, in that, I faced with the same question way back then, posited, that what we were seeing was an emergent phenomena. I wrote an essay recently on Substack, which is where most of our thinking comes from and was the basis for the book, our daily Substack essays, in which I talked about my theory of the case. And it involves, it can be best described as a Venn diagram. Uh, I know the vice president loves those. And uh, so uh, tip of the hat to Kamala. But it's the intersection, in my opinion, of three major forces. One is the enormously complex nature of, of the world right now, economically and geopolitically. So complex systems. Another one is uh, based on Hannah Arendt's uh, thesis um, in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, that the origin of the banality of evil, and there's no question that what we've experienced is evil, is in the failure to think. So I take that as another one of the major intersecting forces is the failure to think and ignorance. 
The third one is nefarious scheming. There is no question that there's been nefarious scheming. It's easily documented um, from a variety of different sources. And at the intersection of nefarious scheming and failure to think, we have unintended consequences or what the intelligence community calls blowback. At the intersection between failure to think and complex systems, we have arbitrary bureaucracy, which has absolutely played a major role in all of this. And at the intersection of complex systems and nefarious scheming, we have corruption. And there's no question that corruption has played a key role in this. And at the center of all of it, I attribute the banality of evil, as Hannah Arendt described in the case of Eichmann, that these forces that interact based on the mundane of people wanting to advance their careers, make more money, gain more power, um, create this uh, system-wide evil that emerges from the interaction of all these forces. So that's my interpretation, is that it's kind of all of the above of what you just listed and their interactions that have given rise to this. But in no way do I discount that there are nefarious actors that have schemed, conspired, um, acted in a corrupt way. Uh, there's no question that we've had war profiteering. That's unequivocal. And I don't know why the war profiteering laws aren't being cited and applied uh, back from World War II and Harry Truman. Uh, we, we have um, a huge mess on our hands now, and it looks like it's gonna get worse before it gets better as we're looking at what's happening in international banking, the thrust vectors towards um, the uh, central bank digital currency and the Bank of International Settlements and its various baby banks like the Fed, um, the prospect of hyperinflation that's right on the horizon, the role of the BRICS economy countries and their new uh, currency that's going to be gold and securities backed that they're building. I mean, we're we're in a in a moment in time when uh, Pax Americana and the uh, um, American enterprise in American hegemony is collapsing, and uh, there are many forces that seek to take America down, and. Uh, um, and to transform the whole globe into a single republic. This is another essay we put out today talking about Mr. Soros. The belief system is that we need to have a single republic unelected, basically a corporatist leadership tied to the UN that will administer the world to ensure equitable distribution of resources under a utilitarian model. This is basically... Um, a command economy, centralized command economy model, um, which is at the root of this book, The Great Reset of Klaus Schwab. Uh, and they believe that the idea of autonomous nation states with their own sovereignty is obsolete. That um, in order to get equality, equity, equal distribution of resources globally, remember this is coming from the United Nations, which is... Um, the balance of power in the UN is towards the little small nations, not the big ones, because of how it's, the representation is. And there's the belief system that people have the right to migrate wherever they want, to live wherever they want, that there should be full, equitable distribution of resources. And it basically comes down to the core concept of from each according to his abilities and to each according to his needs. We've heard that before. That is the essence of Marxism. That sounds like an absolute horror movie. <laughs> All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing its end. Just a reminder, we've been working extremely hard to bring you some of the most powerful voices in the truth liberty movement. We work tirelessly for you to bring these concepts to the masses and to educate and wake up those who continue to sleep. Please don't forget to consider donating or subscribing if you appreciate the work we do. It's becoming more and more difficult to do this, and we can no longer depend on social media advertisers of big tech monetization. Our support network is you. So help us rebuild this organization by going to our website, thefreethoughtproject.com, and at the top you'll find tabs for our memberships and donations. Also, please review and rate this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you, Freethinkers. 
thank you, Dr. Robert Malone, like for coming on here. You're very articulate with this message, and I can see why you've risen to this level in front of this movement, and you have so many people behind you, man. It's a uh, it's been an honor to talk to you for this hour here, and uh, we you know we wish you the best. But before we go on, um, like this whole podcast has been pretty bleak. We've covered some some pretty damning and some hard hitting subjects, and that brings me to your book. Um, which you just published uh, last year, late last year, which is called The Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Future Coming. So the, I know your book has gotten rave reviews from so many people. And I know in the book. But you, not from the press. Yeah, definitely not from the mainstream press who just <laughs> who just attacks everybody. They, they just ignore it. Just right. Like they do Bobby Kennedy's book. But in, in, in the book, you you offer, you know, you, you call on people to come up with their own solutions to problems and to fight the fascist state and this corporatocracy. But the last half of the title, The Better Future Coming, I want to know what this, what you personally think about this and how you maintain this hope, given everything that we've discussed for the last hour, that a better future is coming. So one of the things that's happened through the last three years, and this is part of my personal journey, I also was uh, hypnotized by a lifetime uh, under the corporate press and all of their lies. I, you know, I, one of the big shockers for me has been the bookend of the COVID crisis and uh, Tucker Carlson's comments about the Warren Commission and the assassination of the president. Uh, the, we can now see the falsehoods. The public is now increasingly aware, maybe it's only 30% of people that are awake, but they can see the manipulations, the falsehoods, the fifth generation warfare that's been deployed on us, the psyops. And once you can see it, then you can see through it and you become resistant. You can also become a practitioner. One of the things about fifth generation warfare is it's low cost, low impact and completely decentralized. It has no leaders. And so you can practice these technologies yourself. And many of us do on social media, whether or not we're aware of it. What they've been doing to us, we have a window of opportunity to engage and resist this uh, um, effort to hurt us and shape our future into a command centralized globalized economy. Um, George Orwell, in an introductory essay to one of the early versions of 1984, anticipated that we would eventually end up in a totalitarian pharmaceutical state in which we would all be basically drugged to numbness, much as our children are being done with Ritalin, particularly our young boys. And that his belief was the only way we can avoid that is by building and strengthening decentralized institutions. And that's how we get to the better future is we build, you know, the phrase it's, it's um, almost trite. Think globally, act locally, build your community, build your, um, uh, build your Galt's Gulch, build uh, referring to Ayn Rand uh, and Atlas Shrugged, build uh, local intentional communities as is discussed in some of those chapters in the end and strengthen those organizations and institutions, those decentralized organizations and institutions. And I argue that um, one of the seminal sets of documents uh, that enable a decentralized world is the US Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Those provide excellent roadmaps towards a decentralized future. And uh, those that are advocating for things like states' rights and uh, the Supreme Court case, EPA versus West Virginia, that forces responsibility back on the legislature from the administrative state are the way forward. There are things we can do to recapture our sovereignty and autonomy. And now that we can see what is being done to us, now that we can see the footsteps of the Biden administration and their hidden hand with the international health regulations, we can resist those. The question is, are people going to wake up and act or are children going to end up indentured servants? 
I vote for the former. <laughs> well, that was a very powerful ending, Dr. Malone. And you almost sound like an agorist or a philosophical anarchist there at the end. So you know, that certainly is going to resonate with our uh, with our audience. But thank you for being a voice of reason and sanity in an empire of lies. And I know I speak for thousands, if not millions, who thank you for that service and your dedication to the truth. So thank you for your time today, doctor. We appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to have a chat with you guys and with your audience.